All right. Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 5. We got a fun one in uh, in the pipeline for today. Um, <laughs> as always, I like to begin with some Zen stuff. And last time we mentioned this saying, above, there isn't a piece of tile to cover his head. Below, there isn't an inch of earth for him to stand on. And we said that this represents... Uh, the firm ground of emptiness upon which Zen students are encouraged to rely upon, which is, if you notice what I said, I said the firm ground of emptiness, meaning there's nothing to rely upon. And the thing about Zen is, as Alan Watts would say, it, it beats the stuffing out of you. It beats everything out of you until you cling to nothing. So this was uh, what we read last time. Above, there isn't a piece of tile to cover his head. Below, there isn't an inch of earth for him to stand on. So in that same vein, when the mouth wants to speak about it, words fail. When the mind seeks affinity with it, thought vanishes. Sun and moon cannot illuminate it completely. Heaven and earth cannot cover it entirely. The deer hunter doesn't see the mountains. The miser doesn't see men. So I love this because it really puts into the words the fact that it's impossible to put anything into words. And the second you try to grasp it with words, it immediately vanishes. The sun and the moon are incapable of illuminating whatever it is. And whatever you think you're seeing, whatever you think you are sensing, is not necessarily as it seems. Here's a, a few separate uh, Zen sayings just to continue to get our appetite wet for some of this spiritual psychotherapy coming your way. In the words of the poet Hokoji, marvelous power and supernatural activity, drawing water, carrying wood. So if that seems boring to you, realize it's really anything but that. But when your mind is so clear, all you need to focus on is just what is, which is drawing water, carrying wood. So as I sit here, I look around, I see table and chairs, book and water bottles. It's equivalent to that. There's a Zen poem which says, Sudden crash of thunder, the mind doors burst open, and there sits the ordinary old man. That is describing something incredible, which is, during the mystical experience, a person is having all these different visions and sensing and seeing and hearing all these different marvelous, fantastic, supernal visions and sounds that he's hearing and seeing. But at the end of the day, once he comes back to quote unquote himself, all of a sudden after the, the doors of the mind burst open, there you are. You come back to little old me, quote unquote. And that's the almost hilariousness of the experience is the dichotomy between the grandeur of what this mystical experience is like versus the seeming mundaneness of just little old me sitting here. But somehow little old me is the portal towards all of this. So again, you know, we, we mentioned last time, what is that portal? Can anybody ever really find that portal? Well, Kabir has a beautiful 
quote about this. He says, wherever you are is the entry point, meaning you don't have to look somewhere else to find what you're looking for. We always, I always like to quote the alchemist. The message of the book is the buried treasure you're looking for was right in your backyard the whole time. So it's really very much about a journey inwards. And that may sound cliche, but I think we're trained in today's day and age to constantly be looking outwards, to constantly be looking for stimulation. But when we do this inner journey to the self, we really start to see what ancient poems are talking about. Lightning flashes, sparks shower. In one blink of your eyes, you've missed seeing. What this is saying is it's something that can never be captured. It's something that is like, wow, it was like, like lightning before my eyes. Sparks that were showering. But then before I knew it, I missed it. Whatever it was, it passed by so quickly. I could barely pay attention. So now I'd like to read with you some words from Alan Watts. Alan Watts has really just a uh, fantastic lecture, uh, or many, many different lectures. And I just, this one in particular, I took some excerpts that I thought were really fun. Once upon a time, there was a Zen student who quoted an old Buddhist poem to his teacher, which says, The voices of torrents are from one great tongue. The lines of the hills are the pure body of Buddha. Isn't that right? He said to the teacher. It is, said the teacher, but it's a pity to say so. So this Zen student was seeking validation from the teacher. He's saying, aren't you impressed that I'm aware and, and I can reflect this ancient Buddhist teaching, which is saying that the voices of torrents are from one great tongue, the lines of the hills are the pure body of Buddha. Isn't that right? So he's really trying to start up some kind of conversation with his teacher. And the teacher in classic Zen fashion is saying, it's true, but it's a pity to say so. Because as we always say, even the necessity or feeling this necessity to speak words is a total uh, sham in a way when it comes to Buddhism, because you can never put it into words. So what exactly are we doing here? Every time I ask myself the same question, it's like when you go to a, a psychiatrist or to a therapist that's court mandated, and you look at the therapist and you say, All right, what am I doing here? It's kind of the same thing. What are we doing here? Well, we can have fun with the words, but let's not get lost in them. Let's see that they're pointing to something greater than themselves, similar to what we mentioned in the Zohar a couple of weeks back. Moshe Rabbeinu, when, when he was in Shamayim and the angels were challenging God. They're saying, how could you let a human of flesh and blood join our ranks? And Moses was told by God, grab onto my kisah kavod, grab onto my throne and answer them. Meaning when you grab onto that which is beyond yourself, when you grab onto non-grabbing, in other words, that's when you are able to answer those angels in your mind. He, was, he says, it would be, of course, much better if this occasion were celebrated with no talk at all. And if I addressed you in the manner of the ancient teachers of Zen, I should hit the microphone with my fan and leave. Right? Imagine I gave episode six, just boom, and then I'm out of here. That's the way it was done in uh, some ancient Zen circles. 
I warn you that by explaining these things to you, I shall subject you to a very serious because if I allow you to leave here this evening under the impression that you understand something about Zen, you will have missed the point entirely. So there's nothing to get. And if you think you got it, you missed it. He says here, because Zen is a way of life, a state of being, that is not possible to embrace in any concept whatsoever, so that any concepts, any ideas, any words that I shall put across to you this evening will have as their object showing you the limitations of words and of thinking. So the words that are of value are the words that show themselves to be limited. And it's similar to what we talk about with the intellect. A good intellectual argument is one that shows the limits of the intellect, because then it allows you to see that which is beyond. It is the very nature of energy to be like waves, and waves have crests and troughs. Only we, being under a certain kind of sleepiness or illusion, imagine that the trough is going to overcome the wave, right? We're always afraid, or the crest, right? So we're afraid that the trough is going to overcome the, tr the crest of the wave. The yin, the dark principle, is going to overcome the yang or the light principle. And then off is finally going to triumph over on, and we, shall I say, bug ourselves by indulging in that illusion. Supposing darkness did win out, wouldn't that be terrible? And so we're constantly trembling and thinking that it may. So when you reduce reality to really just dualism, this is the level just outside the gates of heaven just outside the gates of the non-dual, is dualism. We're constantly playing with these games of good and evil, positive and negative, yin and yang. And we are totally neurotic about this. We cannot allow black to win. If black wins, if emptiness wins, if the negative wins, then we are cooked, we're done, we're through. So when you find that out, he's saying, when you find out really that all along, it could never have happened, right? It, it was never going to be the case that one would win out over the other because they need each other. He says, when you find that out, you become full of energy and delight, right? So when you find out that, that really the truest you cannot die, you become full of energy and delight. As Blake said, energy is eternal delight. And you suddenly see through the whole sham of things. You realize you... You are that, we, we won't put a name on it, he says. You're that. You're it. And you can't be anything else. See, so you are relieved of fundamental terror. I love this. I think this is where spiritual psychotherapy begins. It's the ability to ability see beyond... beyond I, I think I'm hearing someone's feedback. feedback. Yeah, no, I was, I, I was, you were, I thought you wouldn't take a pause. I was going to add a comment, but oh, go ahead. Yes, please, no, please. Please, please. No, please. No, I'm just, it's crazy. Like, you know, some of, so much of us want to know how to think. What route should I take? What's my GPS? You know, so many different things. I find myself knowing the answer to things at work, but asking somebody anyway, just to be safe and all that doubt. And, 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 you know, like somebody who doesn't have all that doubt or whatever, you're stripping them, like, and you're really stripping them of, of, of the value of life by giving them an example so they can relate or, uh, you know, uh, a historical fact so they can see the other side. You kind of like, 
you you invade their mind with your experiences and now limit their own experiences is what I've kind of taken from what you're saying. Interesting. Okay. So I'm I'm taking it a little bit more in the sense of like deeply philosophically, but yes, I can see that as well. That you know, you you when you when you have an influence on somebody else's thinking, that's certainly the case. Uh, but here I'm also talking about an added layer of just this, just this any any, any, any at all. At all. Yeah, yeah. Any level, any level at all, and it can go all the way up to the examples that you're bringing. I'm saying yeah. it would even go yeah. down to my new level of I'm sitting, standing inside with my friends. Oh, do I need a coat? I don't know. Let me check the weather. And I'm like, sir, you know, I have a door. I have a window. Like yeah. you could stick your head out. You know, same idea. Small, small things as well. That's absolutely, all. absolutely. It certainly goes to every level. You know, every level of of questioning and anxiety and dithering and wobbling. It all involves some kind of fundamental terror. But the the beauty is that spiritual psychotherapy, I think, really begins when you're able to overcome that, when you're able to overcome that fundamental fear that it's possible for one to overcome the other. And when you realize you're the whole thing, you really are the positive and the negative. That doesn't mean that you're always going to be a great hero, that you won't jump when you hear it bang, that you won't worry occasionally. That you won't lose your temper. It means, though, that fundamentally, deep, deep down within you, you will be able to be human, not a stone Buddha. Right? So it, you're, you're still going to be a human being at the end of the day. You're not going to just totally be stoic when anything happens. He says, you know, in Zen, there's a difference made between a living Buddha and a stone Buddha. If you go out to a stone Buddha and you hit him hard on the head, nothing happens. You break your fist or something. You break your stick. But if you hit a living Buddha, he may say, ouch. That's the difference. A living Buddha is a real live human being who is present with whatever's going on and who naturally allows his emotions and his reactions to flow. Buddhas are human, he says. And again, we say Buddha as someone who has woken up. They are not gods. They are enlightened men and women. But the point is that they are not afraid to be human. They are not afraid to let themselves participate in the pains, difficulties, and struggles that naturally go with human existence. The only difference is, and it's almost an undetectable difference, it takes one to know one. So here's the beauty of it. A Zen poem says, when two Zen masters meet each other on the street, they need no introduction. When thieves meet, they recognize one another instantly. So a person who is the real cool Zen understander does not go around saying, oh, I understand Zen. I have Satori. I have this uh, attainment. I have this attainment. I have another, the other attainment. That's not what it's about. It's just something that, boom, you got it. So when one Zen master sees another Zen master, he looks at the other one with a kind of smirk on his face. And the other guy probably smirks back. Because they both see through the seriousness that everybody else is taking this game with. Everybody else playing this game is constantly concerned. How can we ever allow black to win over white, negative over positive, yin over yang? How could we ever allow this? Meanwhile, the Zen master, even though he might have fear, he sees through that game. And he knows that it's impossible for 
any real death to be final or any real negative to overcome. Chuang Tzu said, the perfect man employs his mind as a mirror. It grasps nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives, but does not keep. Another poem says of wild geese flying over a lake, the wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection, and the water has no mind to retain their image. All right, so all of this is, is simply trying to allow you to understand what is it like to be in a state of mind where you allow things to wash over you without things getting stuck. And this is one of my favorite parts of the lecture. He says, all that sounds a little bit, you know what I mean? It sounds pious. And in Zen, things that sound pious are said to stink of Zen. Right? If you tell somebody or, or something that they said, you say it stinks of Zen or you stink of Zen. It's like a way of saying what we said in the beginning, which is it's a pity to say so. Zen is not supposed to be something that sounds religious or sounds pious. Right? The point of Zen is really just to have no hang-up. That is to say, to be able to drift like a cloud and flow like water. Seeing that all life is a magnificent illusion, a playing of energy. And there's absolutely nothing fundamentally to be afraid of. Fundamentally, you will be afraid on the surface. You will be afraid of putting your hand in the fire. You'll be afraid of getting sick, etc. But you will not be afraid of fear. I think that's so important. Because the things that really get us within this journey of ours, the psychological, spiritual journey that we're all on, it's no amount of sadness can really get to us. No amount of fear can really get to us. The problem really begins when we get into a loop, when we, when we become depressed about feeling depressed or afraid of feeling afraid. That's real depression and that's real anxiety. But a healthier form of sadness and fear is just to feel the sadness and the fear when they come up, but not to continue to feed them with a looping of that same emotion. Don't fight the emotion. Just allow it to wash over you and make its way down the stream. You cannot attain it by not thinking, or you cannot attain it by thinking, and you cannot attain it by not thinking. You cannot, you cannot grasp it by not thinking. Or you, all right, so what, he, what he's saying basically is it's not about thinking about something or not thinking about something. It's not about grasping or not grasping. Or you could say you cannot catch hold of the meaning of Zen by doing something about it. But equally, you cannot see into its meaning by doing nothing about it. Because both are in their different ways attempts to move from where you are now here to somewhere else. And the point is that we come to an understanding of this, what I, call, what I call suchness, only through being completely here. Right? So I love this because it's a not doing that's not an intentional not doing. It's just simple not doing. It's true, true relaxation in the deepest sense of the term. But if your intention is to not do in order to become relaxed, you're already doing something. When the old it's, master, uh, it, it's um, acceptance. Exactly, total, total acceptance. It, right, because you're not moving and you're not staying still. You're exactly. just uh, being. Just, 
Staying sit still is like, all right, now I have to set an intention to, to remain still. This is just naturally just being exactly like you're saying. It's just, you know, I, I think the beauty of this is it's not just one thing to, to put into words, but it's like a bunch of different things that we can, uh, you know, continue to have more and more of a flavor and more and more of a sense of this. Hey, Baruch Abba. Yeah, but they'll have a seat. Um, so now we're, we'll we'll continue on with the, with what he's saying. That's the next thing. Yeah, please do. When the old master, Hyakujo, was asked, what is Zen? He said, when hungry eat, when tired sleep. But then what did all the, uh, the disciples say? They said, well, isn't that what he does? Right? Doesn't everybody already, when hungry eat, when tired sleep? He says, no. Ordinary people don't do anything of the kind. When they are hungry, they don't just eat. They think of all sorts of things. When they are tired, they don't just sleep, but dream all sorts of dreams. So there's a, there's a simplicity in Zen, which is when you're doing something, just do that thing. If I'm drinking the water. I'm mindfully drinking the water. I just drink the water. Right. That's that's the way to cure yourself of neuroticism, to cure yourself of continuous uh, need to constantly entertain yourself with thinking or cling to a certain past or assert a certain future. It's not about that with Zen. It's just about dancing with what you're currently doing. When Suzuki uh, dissects was asked, what is it like to have Satori? He said, well, it's like ordinary everyday experience, except about two inches off the ground. But there's another saying that that student who has attained Satori goes to hell as straight as an arrow, right? Far and around here, because anyone who has a spiritual experience, whether you get it through Zazen, meaning sitting Zen, or through an LSD experience or anything like that, you know, that gives you that experience. If you hold on to it, though, say, now I've got it, it's gone out of the window. Because the minute you grab the living thing, it's like catching a handful of water. The harder you clutch, the faster it squirts through your fingers. So now, I, I love this this uh, quote from Suzuki Daisets, you know. It's normal, uh, everyday experience is exactly like Satori. Except Satori feels like you're hovering about two inches off the ground. Because you're flowing so easily with everything. and You don't feel this heaviness to you. You don't feel a gravity. It feels lighter. That's basically what he's saying. And what does this mean? That the famous saying, the student who has attained Satori goes straight to hell as straight as an arrow. Why is that? Well, that's because so often, if you think you've attained Satori, that is exactly the road to hell. What's Satori? Satori is enlightened. <laughs> God bless me. <laughs> it's sudden enlightenment. So if you think you've attained that, then you think there's a you who can cling to that experience, and thereby you have totally misunderstood the point of Zen. Thank you so much, Sadiq.
Well, well, you can't attain it. So that's that's the other issue. Exactly. There's no it's, you it's that can attain it. Yeah. Well, also it's aspirational anyway. Yes. Because to attain implies that there was a on something lacking, and then the attainment of it. And that's why the Buddha famously says in uh, in the Prajna Paramita, which is the, the Diamond Sutra, he says, after the experience of having this unadulterated, total immersive enlightenment, where you have now, not only have you been enlightened, you've enlightened every being in the whole planet, at the same exact moment, you realize not a single being has been enlightened, including you. And it's only if you could have those two things simultaneously in your mind. Number one, it's total unadulterated enlightenment. And on the other hand, absolutely nothing was attained. <laughs> Unless you fully see both of both, you've totally misunderstood the point. But I hope you're, you're starting to get a flavor of, of what this is all trying to say. And it's like he says here, it's like trying to clutch a handful of water. The other way of saying it is it's like trying to uh, capture the wind in a box, right? It's totally, it doesn't make any sense. And it's totally futile. I could, I could describe some meaning to that, capture the wind in a box. Mm -hmm. you're, giving, you're giving structure to something. You're, you're being intentional about something. You're like, you're... But the point is, it ceases, it ceases to be wind when it goes in the box. That's the point, is that you're describing something that cannot be done. It's like trying to create a four-sided triangle. By definition, it cannot be done. Oh. That's the point. So he says, yeah, there's nothing to get hold of because you don't need to get hold of anything. You had it from the beginning. It was already there. Now, if you go off in that way... That is what would be called in Buddhism a private Buddha, right? What they call a Pratyega Buddha. He's one who goes off into the transcendental world and is never seen again, right? This person's never seen ever again. And he's made a mistake from the standpoint of Buddhism because from the standpoint of Buddhism, there is no fundamental difference between the transcendental world and this everyday world. This is so fundamental and so important and that's why i think it's important that we discuss it so let's see what he's saying the bodhisattva you see who doesn't go off into a nirvana and stay there forever and ever but comes back and lives ordinary everyday life to help the other beings to see through it too he doesn't come back because he feels he has some sort of solemn duty to help all mankind and all that kind of pious stuff Right? It's not about that. He comes back because he sees the two worlds as being fundamentally the same. He sees all other beings as Buddhas. He sees them, to use the phrase of G.K. Chesterton, but now a great thing in the street seems any human nod where move in strange democracy the million masks of God. So the point here is this, Prat this Pratyega Buddha fundamentally didn't get it. If he thinks that he needs to go be private off on a mountaintop, then he's making a distinction between the mountaintop and everyday life. But a bodhisattva, the reason that he's so easily able to come right back into normal waking everyday consciousness is not because, oh, I'm going to be such a sadiq and I'm going to set this intention to fix the world 
That's not the point of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva has a wisdom that has naturally occurred to him because he sees through it all. He sees absolutely no distinction between meditating off in the corner by himself and going to uh, you know, work in the sanitary department in New York. He sees absolutely no difference. And when he looks at people that are quote-unquote unenlightened, all he sees are faces of the Buddha. All he sees are faces of enlightened people who just don't know it. But they're already enlightened. That brings something to mind, actually. Mm-hmm. Can I share? Please, yeah. It brings to mind um, It brings to mind a statement from a, from a Gemara and Tani. What you said about... Uh, what you said about the I forget the exact names. I'm I'm not so sure of the mm-hmm. context. So yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But you said that he sees no difference between meditating in the corner himself. Yes. And working in the sanitation department. Yeah. Made me think of a line from the Gemara that says it speaks about two rabbis, two Amoraim, I think, who were discussing uh, where they should where if if one should move to the place of the other mm. right because maybe there are better people there it's a better environment for him mm-hmm. and then one of the Amoraim uh, replied to the other it's not the person who it's not the place that who that honors the person rather it's the person who honors his place Beautiful. So the way the way the way I the way I personally see that, right, in a figurative sense, is that is that a person creates a person creates his um state of well being depending on where he is on where he is. He doesn't use the environment. He doesn't let exactly. The, he doesn't let the mood or the external factors or external dictate dictate how he should be feeling or how he sh- or his sense of self. He allows his sense of self to exert himself. On his environment, mm. so that's exactly. what came to mind when you mentioned uh, meditating in the corner and mm-hmm. working in the working in the sanitation. Department. I think that is a beautiful and perfect quote because it's not about where you are; it's about the perspective that you bring to it. So that's why, famously, we have another Zen koan. They say, "What is the fundamental principle of Buddhism?" And the guy says, "A dried dung scraper." And what's the meaning of that? Well, if you, you know, some might say, oh, uh, Sefer Torah, that's that's the fundamental uh, holiest thing, object that we can think of. This is saying don't make any distinction between quote-unquote holy and quote-unquote unholy. There is no difference. Any difference that you see is a total illusion. And a person who is of this mindset can be anywhere and look at anything without feeling that he is not looking at the face of God. He can look at anything and say, this is the face of God, right? But here's one of my favorite parts. And that's why when you get up against the great guru, the Zen master or whatever, he has a funny look in his eyes, right? So the the famously, um, Alan Watts said that he had a picture of uh, one of these famous gurus on his wall. And he said, anytime I would look at it, it's this little smirk that he has in his eye that every time I walk in the room, it catches me. You know, like, stop taking everything so seriously. So so this the famous archetype of a Zen guru, he looks you in the eye, has this funny look in his eyes. And when you say, I have a problem, guru, guru I'm really mixed up. And I don't understand. 
right? So, so you feel like you have these big problems that you need help with. He looks at you in this queer way. I do think, oh, dear me, right? So, so now the person who's being looked at says, oh, no, he's reading my most secret thoughts. He's seeing all the awful things that I'm made of, right? all my cowardice, all my shortcomings. He's not doing anything of the kind. He isn't even interested in such things. He's looking at, if I may use Hindu terminology, he's looking at Shiva in you. He's saying, my God, Shiva, won't you come off it? Right. The point being, when he looks into your eyes, he's not seeing a pathetic human being. He's not seeing through all your secrets and all your, your darkest things that you've ever done or thought. The, this Zen guru, even though you might feel self-conscious and feel that way. Instead, he's looking at you as the face of God and saying, God, won't you just come off it already? Stop playing this game as though you're little old Dr. Nasser. I know exactly who you really are. I know that you're just God in drag. I know that you're just God with a mask. And that's the point. The point is, you should, you can be able to look at anything and say, wow, this is the face of the divine. So you say, Alan Watts gives the example in the lecture. He says, somebody that was on an LSD trip and they looked at an ashtray and they saw the beatific vision in this ashtray, that all total mystical experience. And then after the, the experience, he looks at the ashtray, it's just an ashtray. <laughs> but still, that's the point, is that when your eyes are really open, they're open to seeing God everywhere. Sounds a lot like the uh, concept of Selam Elohim. I mean, every time I hear, hear that, I'm thinking, you know, that God uh, created man with his breath. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> exactly, exactly with it. His, with his breath? Yeah, that Hashem created, you know, uh, with, with his own breath created yeah. Adam, but but also Betzalmo, Betzalmo, so Hashem created us in his image. What does that mean? Well, Every single person really is a spark of the divine, really is the divine, but in hiding. We know Hashem is stretching out the light okay. like it's, yeah, like, right? He's stretching out these things like, uh, like a shirt, like a cloth, like a curtain, hiding his face from us. But when we see through the veil, we're able to see what really is. All right, so finally, well, before we go to the Zohar, lightning flashes, sparks shower, in one blink of your eyes you've missed seeing. This is how we, we began it. And we'll say like this, which is, it's not something you could hold on to. It's something that happens faster than you can blink your eye. Faster than the flash of lightning. But if it takes noticing the silence between the words, it takes noticing, let's say you have a, a wave of light or sound. The wave has the crests, which are moving so quickly, you might not notice the troughs in between. But once you start to notice that, there is God. So you ever sitting in a room and the light, the fluorescent light is so bright. And it's like, you don't even, and then you shut the lights. And then you see in your mind's eye, you see the light flashing even though when the light was on you didn't see a flash you just saw a light but when the light's off you see the you see the flashing 
Because you didn't even notice that it was something that was flashing. All of reality is that same way. It's flashing into and out of existence at all times. You, ever, you know what? Can I you about a physical yeah. experience? You ever had this experience where you close your eyes, maybe even sleeping, you're falling asleep. Mm-hmm. You kind of see these like circles start forming. Like these yes. Circles, like they, they just start forming. It's nothing very else. normal. It's very, very normal. Baruch good. And they yeah. look like kind of mixed colors. They look like very neon Yes. Those are very normal experiences because it's in your mind's eye you're able to visualize and it's not even your mind's eye. It's like just the, the physical, uh, you know, something about the way that the eye works. I'm not exactly sure. Probably something to do with the rods and the cones. I should have paid more attention in ophthalmology class. But when you close your eyes, sometimes if you press down in your eyelids, you can see, you know, different patterns and different, my yeah. mom's musical wallpaper. Yes. It's the same. I feel color. like, uh, I don't yeah. know if you can hear me. I feel like it's a, um, Basically, you're just causing aberrant um, sensory information to uh, to be generated by your uh, your receptors. That's what I think is going Most on. likely, yeah. Most likely, that's what's going on. Great. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I know about the rods and cones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vision and color vision. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, All right. So without further ado, let's do some Zohar. Um, so you guys can all follow along here. We left off last time talking about Shabbat. Yeah, same thing. Um, can I follow along here? Yeah, you can, but uh, it's it's also here. Fadal, let me see if I can open it up for you. Um, let's see. <coughs> Should be right here. Okay, so we left off last time talking about Shabbat, and we were saying that there's uh, Friday night is the Shekhinah, Saturday day is represented by. Um, I believe it was Yesod, right? So the, the, the feminine and the male elements of Shabbat and that they're interchangeable, right? Normally you would expect male before female. This is female before male. Shabbat is almost like transcending time and space. And that, why are there two? Well, it says in the, in the Pasuk, Et Shabbatotai Teshmoru, keep my Shabbats, plural. And Shabbat Malka. Right. About so, Malka, so we, we think of it in the, as in the feminine, but it also has this masculine element to it. Uh, so we'll see a lot more about that now. Well, at night, right? At night, it's yeah. Malka. You know, you're, you're welcoming in the Shabbat, usually say, like you said. Yes, but we all know, but we all know, we say Melavim Malka on Saturday night. I mean, Probably, Friday night, but yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I'm saying Melavim Malka happens on Saturday night when you're seeing Shabbat off into, into the week. So Shabbat, in regular terms, is is a feminine word. So it's always related to in the feminine. But Kabbalistically, because of this pasuk, it has a male and female element to it. Because of, which um, it's a, because of the pasuk, right, So now you might ask, if so, why my Sabbaths you are to observe too? The answer is the Shabbat of Shabbat Eve and the Shabbat of the, of the day itself, which are indivisible. And we said there are two aspects of Shabbat, the feminine Shabbat Friday night, which is Shekhinah, and the masculine Shabbat day, symbolized by Tiferet or Yesod, right, which are the male elements. Now, I love this. The rambling donkey driver, goading behind them, said, and what is Umikdashi Tira'u, right, the continuation of the Pasuk is, Umikdashi Tira'u Ani Adonai, and my sanctuary you are to hold in awe. Right, so first of all, who is this rambling donkey driver? And why is he contributing to this Torah conversation between Rabbi Al-Azhar and, and some of the other students? Well, it's known as a tayya'ah, 
It was an Arab Arabian caravaner. All right, so similar to some of the Uber drivers that we have today. That's I just thought that was funny. Uh, derived from the name of the Arabian tribe Tayyi'i, uh, the prophet Eliyahu returns to earth to appear as a Tayya'a in Masichet Berachot and as an Aravi, as an Arab in Rut Zuta. Uh, so this is really interesting because the Tayya'a is not just some random Arab taxi driver. He is actually a person of real important insights. And uh, in the Zohar... Do the merchant or no? No. I don't think so. And the Zohar Taya indicates one of several wandering donkey drivers who annoy, perplex, and enlighten the companions on the road. Right. So the job almost of this person is to be a sounding board and to be almost like a havruta for these rabbis on their way. Right. But it's uh, it's comedic, right? It's comedic. I mean, it's 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 you know exactly. It's funny. It's, it's like very funny. Knowledge is coming from from a place that you know you, you don't expect. It, so do it's not funny. expect it. You do not expect him to be piping in with the the, the You don't expect the, the Arab uh, driver to be piping up with. Uh, so he replies, right? So, so first of all, th- this guy is saying, What about the second half of the Pasuk? What do you do with that here? And now Rabil Azad answers, who Rabil Azad being the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, this is the holiness of the Shabbat, right? So now this is beautiful because he's interpreting the, the, the rest of the Pasuk, that you should hold my sanctuary in awe. Normally, we think of Mikdash as a place. He's saying, no, even the word Mikdash is actually talking about the holiness of Shabbat, which is interesting, by the way, because Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has a book called The Sabbath, and he talks about the Sabbath as being a palace in time. And I believe this is where he got it from. So this this Arab uh, driver is saying, in response, what is the holiness of the Sabbath? Right? So then Rebil Azad replies, this is the holiness drawn down from above. Right, so they're trying to interpret the second half of the pasuk as this mikdash really means Shabbat, which is the holiness drawn down from Shamayim. So now the, the the driver is saying, if he said, if so, you have returned the Shabbat into something not holy, except for the holiness that rests upon it from above. So he's saying, how could you say that? How could you say that this is holiness only drawn down from above, if Shabbat we think of as inherently holy? Rabbi Abbas said, so it is, call the Shabbat a delight, the holy of Yod Kevav Ke honored from Yeshayahu. We, we read this in Kiddush on Saturday day, right? All right, so he's saying actually Shabbat and holy of Yod Kevav Ke are each mentioned separately. So therefore, if, if you're mentioning Shabbat as one thing and holy of God as another thing, it must be that Shabbat is in itself holy, right? That's why they're able to be separated. He said, if so, who is holy of Yod Kevavke? Then who is Likdosh Adonai? He replied, holiness that descends from above, resting upon it. Right? So Shabbat is on the one hand, holy in and of itself, but at the same time, it's Likdosh Adonai, which means the holiness of God also rests upon it. He said, if holiness drawn down from above is called honored, then it appears that the Sabbath is not honored. Well, that because he's saying, if you look at the pasuk, what is this word mechubad? If it's called honored, then you're saying, oh, then are you implied? Are you implying that God has to honor it because it's not inherently honored? 
Yet is it is written, the chibato. The next word in the pasuk is right. The kedusha on the line, the chibad, the chibato, me'asot derachicha, and honor it. So you're saying if if it says in the pasuk to honor Shabbat, that must mean that it's honorable in and of itself. So he's really giving them a hard time, as you can tell. This Arab driver, the Bil Azad said to the Abba, let this man be. Oh, so it must be to be Abba was having this exchange with him. Now the Bil Azad says. Leave him be. Within him lies a new word we do not know. Meaning he has wisdom that we need to understand. So now they're finally going to allow this Arab driver to really say his shita, his perspective. Can I ask something? Sure. This is, is this a Braitha or Midrash? This or is all this Midrashim is, from the Zohar. This is, it's from Midrash Abar. Is actually, this is actually the Zohar. This is the actual Zohar. Right. So we, we could talk a little bit more about that, but I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. Good question, though. Um, so now they tell him, speak. Okay, Daber, tell us what you think. Um, he opens saying, Et Shabbatotai, my Sabbaths. Et amplifies the meaning, uh, to, the meaning of this pasuk to include the range of Shabbat. Right? So et is this extra word, lerabot, to include. All right, so let's see. No, no ascertainable independent sense. Uh, but Nahum of Gimzo and his disciple Rabbi Akiva taught that when it appears in a biblical verse, it amplifies the original meaning. Right. So this is a very famous thing that you could be Doresh every et to see the extra meaning that it has. I'm sorry, which means to increase or lerabot. Right. So what is the word et shabbatotai coming to include? Two thousand cubits. The traditional limitation, right? The Tehom Shabbat. You could only walk two thousand cubits, two thousand amot within the city limits, but here actually it refers to the range of holiness beyond the realm of the sefirot, according to uh, certain interpretations, the feet of the divine chariot, right? So actually it's it's talking about the feet of Hashem's Merkaba, so some very interesting interpretation that they're trying to give to it. But bottom line, et shabbatotai means Shabbat's holiness extends in all four directions, even including the different limbs of God's chariot. So the meaning is expanded. Et Shabbat Odai, my Sabbath, one is the higher Shabbat, the other, the lower Shabbat, both included as one, concealed as one. All right, so what's going on here? What is this What is this business about an upper and a lower Shabbat? So the higher Shabbat is Bina, the seventh Sefirah, counting up from Yesod. So obviously Shabbat is the seventh day, so if you count up from Yesod, seven, you get to Bina. And that would be the upper Shabbat. What about the lower Shabbat? That's Yesod, because it's the seventh counting down from Bina. Interesting. Okay, so now we're bringing it to Sifirot terms, and we'll see soon what this means. So both included as one, concealed as one. So first we said that we have, earlier we said there's a male and female element to it. And now this, this Arab driver is agreeing with that. And he's saying, yes, they actually correspond. And I'll prove it to you to Bina and Yesod because they're seven away from each other. Another Shabbat was left unmentioned and felt ashamed. Which Shabbat was this? This was Shabbat Eve, Friday night, symbolizing the Shekhinah. So Shekhinah felt embarrassed. She said before Hashem, she said, Master of the University, Bonosha Alam, since the day you created me, I have been called Shabbat. And there can be no day without night. Right? So the Sefirotic day 
of Yesod needs the night of Shekhinah, right? So Shekhinah is saying, if I'm Friday night and Yesod is Saturday day, he needs me. He, there would be no Saturday day without a Friday night, right? Uh, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in Bereshit Rabbah in the, uh, in the Midrash, Shabbat complains to God that she has no partner among the days of the week, right? Because the first six days each have a partner being even numbers. But the seventh day is the odd man out. So what did Hashem tell Shabbat to console her, according to Bereshit Rabbah? I didn't get that. So Sorry. day the, the, one and day two are partners. Day three and day four are partners. Uh, day day five and day six are partners. Day seven is standing uh, alone. Stand alone. Good. Right, I got it. So now what is what is Hashem telling Shabbat in order to console her? He's saying, Knesset Israel is your partner. How beautiful is that? Mm-hmm. The assembly of Israel is your partner. Um, and that's a way of saying, Shabbat, you thought you were alone, but really, B'nai Israel are your partners. He replied, my daughter, so now this we're going back to the Zohar, my daughter, you are Shabbat, right? Shekhinah, he's saying, you are Shabbat. I call you Shabbat, but I am about to crown you with a higher crown. He issued a proclamation, my sanctuary you are to hold in awe. This is the Shabbat of Shabbat Eve. So we said, Et Shabbat Otai is talking about Bina and Yesod. So Shekhinah felt left out. Hashem said, you know what? He continued the Pasuk, and Mikdashi Tira was actually talking about Shekhinah. So Shabbatotai was Binan Yesod. Mikdashi Tirao includes Shekhinah. Why is Mikdashi Tirao <coughs> awe of my sanctuary talking about Shekhinah? Because Shabbat Eve is awe, and in whom awe dwells. Who is that? The one included by the Holy One when he said, I am Yodkevavke Ani Adonai. So let's see, Shabbat of Shabbat Eve, Friday night, is Shekhinah, who conveys the attribute of judgment, of deen, inspiring awe and fear. The Sefirah of Chokhmah, the father, the father of Shekhinah, is also called awe, and is reflected in his daughter, who is lower Chokhmah. So somehow, Shekhinah is a manifestation of Chokhmah, being the lowest of all the Sefirot, with Chokhmah with being at its head, because Keter is kind of floating all the way above. Chokhmah manifests itself as Shekhinah. And because Chokhmah is Din and is Yir'ah, therefore Shekhinah also is Yir'ah. So that, therefore, Umikdashi Tera was talking about Shekhinah. The end of the Pasuk says, Ani Adonai, I am Kevavke. The full verse reads, Through Shekhinah, God reveals the full spectrum of divine personality and is thus called I. Right? Even though Shekhinah is the lowest level, it manifests all the higher levels in itself. And therefore, Shekhinah is called I. In this phrase, I is joined with Yod Kevavke. And Yod Kevavke represents Tif'eret, which is one of the male elements that joins with Shekhinah. Shekhinah manifests in both sacred time, Shabbat, and sacred space and sanctuary. All right, so Tif'eret joining with Shekhinah is, is basically what's happening at the end of this Pasuk. But the point is, Shekhinah can manifest in sacred time as Shabbat and in sacred space as a sanctuary. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, so let's continue. I heard my father say so precisely. It includes, right? So this is uh, Rabbi Al-Azhar saying about his father, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It includes the range of Shabbat. 
You're right. My Sabbaths are a circle with a square inscribed within. What does that mean? So Shabbatot are like a circle with a square inscribed within. Let's see the footnote. The phrase derives from Masechet Eruvin. Uh, here the reference is to the higher Sefirot, beginning with Bina and culminating in Yesod and Shekhinah. Right, so it's the higher Sefirot that are culminating in Shekhinah and Yesod. Um, and see also where the letter of this is where this the circle of the letter Samech symbolizes Bina, while the square of the letter Mem Sofit symbolizes Shekhinah. So similar idea. Let's see what the Derasha is. They are two, corresponding to which are two hallowings we should recite. One is Vaychulu, and they, heaven and earth, were completed. Right, Vaychulu, Shamayim, Ve'aretz, heaven and earth were completed. The other, Kiddush, hallowing, Vaychulu, contains 35 words. And in the Kiddush that we recite, there are 35 words, altogether amounting to 70 names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with which Keneset Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, is adorned. All right, so let's see what all these ideas are saying. By Hulu, right, which is the opening lines of Kiddush. So now when you say Kiddush, you can have a Kabbalistic understanding of what it's saying. Really beautiful. The opening lines of Kiddush are saying, the, the heaven and earth are being finished. The prayer is cited over, over wine. And then Kiddush, the rest of the, of the prayer, which includes the blessings over wine and the blessing of hallowing the Shabbat. So we have uh, and we have Mekadesh HaShabbat. In the Kiddush we, that we recite, there are 35 words. All right, so this total requires the omission of the following 10 words. So you can't, the, the Ashkenazim say, uh, and also, um, so if you leave those, those 10 words out, you end up with 35. We know that the 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 pesukim themselves have thirty five words. The kiddush that we add has thirty five words. In total, you have seventy words, which of course corresponds to the seven days of creation. And also, here we we're going to see the seventy names that Hashem adorned Shekhinah with. All right. So for various lists of these names, you can look in different places. So let's see what this is trying to say. Um, since this, oh, sorry, so now we're saying that the Bekenesit Israel is being adorned with these 70 different names. Bekenesit Israel in rabbinic Hebrew, this phrase denotes the people of Israel. The Midrash on the Song of Songs of Shida Shinim describes the love affair between the maiden, the earthly community of, of Israel, and her lover. Right? So in the Zohar, Bekenesit Israel can refer to the earthly community, but also often primarily to Shekhinah, the divine feminine counterpart of the people, the aspect of God most intimately connected with them. The lovers in the Song of Songs are pictured as the divine couple, Tiferet and Shekhinah. So beautifully, Shira Shirim can either be talking about Bnei Israel and God. It could also be talking about two sefirot, Tiferet and Shekhinah, the male and the female element. And it could also be talking about um, Shekhinah with Knesset Israel, sorry, Shekhinah, which is Knesset Israel, um, alongside the people, right? So the divine feminine corresponding to Bnei Israel. Since this circle and square are my Sabbaths, 
they are both included in shamor, observe, right? As is written, tishmoru, you are to observe. All right, so now it gets a little bit um, detailed. A little bit geometrical, right? So I'm loving the math over It's here. very cool stuff. So both aspects of the Shabbat, the masculine yesod and the feminine shekhinah, are included in the feminine, right? How is that? Which is signified by the opening word of the fourth of the Ten Commandments, shamor. Right, so shamor somehow signifies both the masculine and the feminine. Why? Well, it symbolizes the feminine because the other version of the Ten Commandments reads zachor. Remember, and we say zachor is zachar. So if zachor is zachar, then shamor must be nekeva. In the verse in Leviticus 19, the plural verb tishmoru, you are to observe, indicates the union of male and female. So shamor must include both male and female because it corresponds to tishmoru, which is plural. Bottom line, Shamor is both male and female. Zachor is just the male. Let's see what they make out of this. Shamor is both male and female. Zachor is just masculine. Exactly, because like Zachar, yeah. which means male. Whereas the higher Sabbath is not included here in Shamor, observe, but rather in Zachor. Remember, um, for right, so Zachor means remember, for the supreme king is completed by Zachor. So the higher Shabbat, let's see what that means. Bina is represented by Zachor. The supreme king in higher Sabbath finds its completion in the masculine sefirah of Yesod, signified by Zachor, which implies Zachar male. So Bina, even though that's a female uh, element, it has this component of Zachor to it. Although often depicted as the divine mother, Bina is also described as World of the male, encompassing the entire configuration of Sefirot from Chesed through Yesod. All right, so I love this because we're constantly doing this. We said about Shekhinah, it, even though it's feminine, it symbolizes also Chokhmah. It's the culmination of everything leading up from the male to the female. So that the same thing is going on here with Bina. Bina is also a manifestation of Zachor, of Zachar, of Yesod of the masculine because it's the culmination of everything leading into its creation together they constitute a masculine entity ready to join the shekhinah i know it gets a little bit too detailed here so he is called the king who possesses peace and his peace is zachor right why is hashem called the king who possesses peace in midrashic literature this phrase is applied to god here it designates binah who contains yesod who is called peace either because he mediates between the right and left poles of the Sefirot, or because he unites Tiferet with Shekhinah. And you can look at Masechet Shabbat, the Bishamon ben Halavta refers to the phallus as the peacemaker of the home. So we see very often that the Sefirot that are in the very center of the, uh, the chart of Sefirot are known as peacemakers because they're balancing the masculine and the feminine. Um, that is why there is no strife above because of the two pieces below. One, Yaakov, the other, Yosef. All right, so what is this saying? Well, Yaakov symbolizes Tiferet, the masculine Sefirah uh, of uh, Tiferet. Yosef symbolizes Yesod, the divine phallus. Um, so both of them are being symbolized here. And we'll say quickly, we have the Pasuk. Um, so it is written twice, peace, peace, shalom, shalom, la rahok la karov. To the far and to the near, right? Exactly. 
Exactly. To the far refers to Yaakov, and then and and the near refers to Yosef. To the far, as it said, from afar, Yotkevavke appeared to me. That's talking about Tiferet, uh, which is Yaakov. His sister stood far off. That's talking about uh, Miriam, of course, but it also symbolizes Shekhinah, who's facing Tiferet. And the near, as it said, new gods who come, who came from nearby, right, which is pretty jarring because it's a pasuk about uh, Avodah Zarah, but it's talking about Yosef, which is Yesod. Uh, nearby represents a more recent emanation of Yaakov because he's closer to us from afar and just genealogically from afar is the highest point standing in its palace right so Chochmah the primordial point of emanation is situated in the palace of Bina Tiferet issues from them from afar so again it's trying to point out everything you see here as the end of the process really began in the beginning of a very long process so even though these sefirot at the very bottom are manifesting as either Shekhinah or as Tiferet or as Yesod, really they are the culmination of all the upper sefirot. So it is written, Tishmoru, you are to observe, included in Shamor, observe my sanctuary, you are to hold in awe, is the point standing in the center, right? So now it's trying to, to explain how does this re- relate to Shabbat. So it is written, Shamor, observe, referring back to the two Shabbatot, Yesod and Shekhinah, or indicated together by the plural verb tishmoru, you are to observe. So the point standing in the center, the central point of Shekhinah inside the square inscribed within the circle. So Shekhinah could be thought of as the very, very epicenter of everything that's going on. The center point inside the square, with which is within the circle. Hmm. So it's the focal point, which one should fear more than anything. For its right, so you should be. You should have this this level of yirah. Um, why? Because for its punishment is death, as is written, anyone who, who breaks this uh, shall surely be killed. Uh, anyone who profanes it. Whoever enters the halal, the hollow of the circle and the square, the site where the point rests and damages it, shall surely be put to death. So it is written, you are to hold in awe that uh, that point is called I, and on it rests that high concealed one unrevealed. That is Yod Vavke, and all is one. So we'll briefly end here. Whoever enters damages it, profaning the Shabbat damages the core of Shekhinah. So it's saying because Shabbat is a sanctuary in time, because Shabbat is such an important thing for all of B'nai Israel, for everything that we're mentioning here, and also it represents the core of Shekhinah, it represents that element of God which is most intimately dwelling amongst us. When you break Shabbat, you're emptying out the center of the circle and the square. You're destroying that dot in the center, which is Shekhinah. That's the one and it's called I. So here, one second, let's see. Who fully expresses the personality of God, called I, Tiferet. Uh, more concealed than Shekhinah, all is one. The conclusion of the verse, Aniyot Kevavke, indicates that Tiferet and Shekhinah are united. Um, so the point being, at the end of the day, Shekhinah is the very center of it, and, and that is what's called I. That's how Hashem is manifesting. And on it rests that high concealed one, the unrevealed. right? And the point being, Tiferet and Shekhinah and everything that came before them are all manifesting in the Shekhinah. And that's Yod Kevavke, that's the oneness of everything. The conclusion of all of it is, Ani Adonai, 
which indicates Tiferet and Shekhinah are now united. I know this was a lot of nitty-gritty, but I think the beauty of it is the, the deeper spiritual message with it, which is whatever you see as the tip of the iceberg really is concealing, is really concealing so much. So the Shekhinah at this very tip, in the center of the square, in the center of the circle, thank you for drawing it, is a manifestation of every divine energy that you could ever conceive of. So when we keep Shabbat, when we are in the sanctuary within time, we can think about every single thing that happened within creation, whether it be in the spiritual realms or the physical realms, everything that's manifesting itself as this Shekhinah on Friday night, when we're reading Kiddush, and it's 70 words representing the seven days of creation and the way that Hashem is adorning that Shekhinah. Hashem is giving Shekhinah so much beauty and so much so much grandeur. It's that one little point, but really represents everything around it, right? Everything around it being the square and the circle and everything manifesting outwards. The A lot of people that have mystical visions, especially on LSD and whatnot, will imagine this type of vision of a circle and a square continuing, and then outside the square, the circle will be another square. Outside that, that square will be another circle, and on and on and on. So oh. Shekhinah is the tip of the iceberg, the central focal point out of which everything this can one? be seen to manifest. Yes. So then you can draw here another thing out there, right? Yeah. And then you can draw, it keeps going and keeps going. So what? there's infinity, which I think is contained within this fractal of Shabbat. I know I'm really reading into it a lot, but I, I really think this is what it's saying. Shekhinah is at the very epicenter. And then you have fractals outwards, what's outwards, outwards. So what's halal? Constantly manifesting. What's, what's halal? Halal, is... halal means if you empty out the Shekhinah. If you, if you, halal to, means to, to, to profane, to desecrate, but also it means to make it empty. And yeah. if you take away the Shekhinah, you're emptying out the center of this. And then you don't get all these beautiful fractals. If you break Shabbat, you don't get that central focal point out of which you can view all the beautiful manifestations and 70 adornments of Shabbat. What about I this, hope that makes sense. Does, does this point have... No, mean something? I don't think so. No, it's just, just that point. center point, exactly. I understood the... Um, hold on. So in the meantime, Gur and, and Dr. Nasser, give me one second. Gur and Dr. Nasser, you have any questions? Because otherwise I'll, I'll stop the recording for now. No, I'm good. Good. I've read through this before, so it's nice to hear it and uh, think about it again. Um, you like you my? Know, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, Ania, Ania Shem, You know, at the end, he's saying uh, basically all of this is just a representation of the singularity, you know, of Hashem, and which is you could think of as the combination of all the Sifirot. Obviously, the combination of the Shekhinah with the Yisod. It's all kind of you know that I think that's the concept, which is basically what a lot of what you were saying. It's all a, yeah. Uh, yeah. a representative of everything, um, and uh, yeah, I like the concept of a sanctuary in time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah, the words are beautiful. You know, it, uh, it makes you appreciate the the, the um, kiddush and and shabbat by extension. Absolutely, and my, my the, the the focal point for me is literally the focal point of this. And thank you, Victor, for drawing it. <laughs> Have you have that center point in the very right. center of this, and you see the fractals that are emerging from it? That's the way it's trying to describe Shekhinah as the manifestation of the center point, and everything that we were mentioning. The distant corner 
and the thing from way beyond. Oh, you could even within Shekhinah, you could see everything that conspired to create it. Right? You could see the Chokhmah. You could see literally God's wisdom, but the Shekhinah that, that is is manifesting all this is is certainly there. Do you know about Azamir Bishbahin? No. It's a, it's, it's, it's a section of the Zohar that's customary to say on Friday night. Really? It's from the Zohar, I believe. Yeah, if you know anything about it. We've, okay, let's talk about it next week for sure. Remember, yeah, you have to uh, update us next week. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you very much, have guys. Have a good night. Thank have you. a great night. Thank you for joining. Have a good night. All right, thank you. Thank you.